Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? Yes, everyone, this is Rich Take on Sports. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. We're here with you for episode number 17, and we continue investing ourselves into developing more and more content each episode, and it holds true for this episode as well. We all know that football season is heating up as the NFL training camps are officially about to start, and people are really starting to talk about college football again, and I know it's very exciting. As the ACC and SEC Media Days, they just wrapped up, so what better time to have our guest this episode? None other than Mr. College Football himself, Tony Barnhart. Now, before we hear from Tony and have him share his story and what sports has meant to his life, I want to remind everyone that to ensure that you don't miss any of these upcoming episodes that we're investing in, you can easily subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and all of this can be found on our website, richtakeonsports.com. And I'll always be posting the episodes via social media, so make sure to follow us on Twitter, at Rich Take Sports. So let's keep things moving with our guest in the Rich Spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. College football is right around the corner, so now we have the opportunity to hear from the man commonly known as Mr. College Football, Tony Barnhart. The 2017 college football season marks Tony's 42nd season of covering college football as either a reporter for newspapers, TV, radio, or the internet, and currently is a TV studio analyst for the SEC Network and expert contributor for GridironNow.com. He spent 25 years with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as its national college football writer and spent eight seasons with CBS Sports as a contributing reporter for College Football Today and also hosted the Tony Barnhart Show before joining the SEC Network when it launched in 2014. You can also find Tony on the radio in Atlanta on W. WQXI 680 The Fan, where he makes several appearances each week during the college football season. He's also an author of five different books, and this past February, he received the Distinguished Achievement Award in Broadcasting and Cable from the Di Gamma Kappa Broadcast Society at the University of Georgia. Now, there's a reason why he's known as Mr. College Football, and that's because of his unparalleled knowledge of the game. And so, of course, I had to ask him for his prediction of what four teams he thought would be in the college football playoff. Right now, I think you you have got to go with Alabama. You've got to go with Ohio State. And after that, it gets a little it gets a little tricky. USC is going to be interesting. The winner of the Clemson Florida State game is going to be interesting. And so uh, I've got about five or six teams in my top four. But right now, I would have to say. I would just say Alabama, Ohio State, Florida State, and uh, USC would be my four teams. And then, so prediction for a national champion? I, I think you, you got to go with Alabama until somebody beats them. Clemson is going to be rebuilding. I think this is going to be a really good Florida State team, but 
Right now, I'm going to I'm going to go with Alabama. I like the depth and the talent of the Crimson Tide. Well, we'll be looking forward to that season coming up. And then, Tony, we all know you're known as Mr. College Football. But before you got that name, share with us your childhood memory, uh, memories of sports and how you fell in love with sports. Well, I, I think I like a lot of guys. I, I started uh, as a young age playing baseball, playing Little League Baseball and uh, in my little town. I grew up in a little town uh, in Georgia, a place called Union Point. For those uh, wonder about maps and stuff like that, it's, it's almost exactly halfway between Atlanta and Augusta, just off of I-20. It was a great place to grow up, about 1,500 people, and we had some Little League baseball teams there, and that's that's sort of when I fell in love with sports and uh you know i was a baseball fan first and then uh got hooked on football a little bit later uh didn't didn't get a chance to play football until i got to high school because my school was so small uh but yeah it all it all started with baseball and watching the yankees on television and just evolved in the i just got hooked on all kinds of sports and once i went to my first college football game i was hooked forever so what was it about that drew you to football well Obviously, I mean, I, I went to my first college football game. I grew up 30 miles from Athens, where the University of Georgia is located. And uh, when I was in the golly, I want to say third grade, one of the parents of the uh, of one of the uh, young ladies that was in my classroom, uh, she had some tickets to the Georgia game. And this was, uh, gosh, 1965, a long time ago. And she took us about three or four of us to the game. And I walked into Sanford Stadium. It was Vince Dooley's second year at Georgia. And I was just, uh, it was just incredible. The the colors and the bands and the pretty girls and the fall afternoon. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And Georgia won the game. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget it. And I just knew that, uh, I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew I wanted to come back. And then, so speaking of high school playing, did you continue playing baseball and football in high school? Well, my, my high school team did not have a baseball team, oddly enough, but we did have a football. I played, I played football, basketball, uh, and tennis uh, in college, in uh, at, at high school. And uh, I wasn't very good at any of them. I, I tell people about my football career. I, I was small, but I compensated by being exceedingly slow. Uh, but I did, I did, I did the best I could, but we had, uh, we had some really good athletes on my team, but I just, I love football. I love everything about it. Uh, I was really close to my coaches and which is why I always tell people when I, when I got it, when I graduated from high school, I had no, no idea that I wanted to be a sports writer. I was going to be a high school coach, a high school teacher and a high school coach. That, that was, that was my plan. But as they say, plans change. How and why did that plan change then? Well, I started because I grew up so close to Athens. Uh, again, when I was growing up, you know, that was the place. Uh, you know, there weren't very many restaurants in my little town. There was no movie theater. So if you took a girl out on a date, you had to drive over to Athens. So as a result, I spent a lot of time in Athens growing up and going over to things at the University of Georgia, not just athletic events, but concerts and things like that. So part of me just wanted to, you know, like a lot of young guys, uh, they want to get away from home, particularly growing up in a small town. And I just felt like going to Georgia was just, it, it'd be like being at home. And so I went to, I started at Georgia Southern uh, because a bunch of my friends had gone there uh, in previous years and 
it was a small campus, but it was down in, in Statesboro, which is about 50 minutes from Savannah, and uh, loved it down there. And I, I was going to major in physical education. I took my first education course because you had to have so many education courses if you were going to be a teacher. And uh, I'll never forget it. Outside of the, the, the door of my, the first education class I took, there was a chart, and it was a salary chart of what first-year teachers were making in the state of Georgia. And, boy, that was depressing. <laughs> but I, I thought about it for a while longer and eventually called my mom and told her I was going to probably do something else. And she said, well, that's fine, son, uh, but you got to do something because you can't come home. And I said, I understand. I understand that, mom. And so basically the way that evolved is, is one day I was at the uh, I was at the student uh, cafeteria, the Landrum Center uh, at uh, in Georgia Southern. And there was a there was a notice on the bulletin board that the student newspaper needed some help uh, in the sports department. And I said, you know, I'm, I, I grew up, I love reading and writing for my mother. She taught me to really enjoy reading. And I know a lot about sports because I played all these sports in high school. And I really love sports. Maybe I could write about sports. Maybe I could do that, something like that. And they, uh, uh, they true story, they sent me to, by then it, we're, we're into, it's January. And we're in the winter's uh, quarter, and they sent me to a basketball game. And when I showed up at the basketball game, uh, at mid, at the table at, at midcourt, there was a there was a chair, and there was a little sign there with my name on it. And I said, "Well, that's kind of cool." And so I sat down, and I sat there for a little while. And then a pretty girl came by and gave me a game program. And then a little while longer, another pretty girl came by and gave me a Coca Cola. I'm saying you know what, I think I'm going to like this sports writing thing. This is kind of cool. And so then I, I wrote a story off the game. I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I wrote I wrote something I thought made sense and saw my byline in the student paper the next week. It was a weekly paper. And, you know, shoot, after that I was hooked. I mean, what, what, what could be better than going to football and basketball games and writing a story and have your name on it and people, everybody see it? I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So I did that for a quarter and decided, you know, this is what I want to do. And that's why I ended up leaving Georgia Southern and transferring to Georgia so I could uh, I could major in journalism. Now, were there any discussions about salary for sports writers that you were concerned about since you had thought about that for teaching? Uh, well, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I mean, it, I, I decided not to be a teacher because of what it paid. And I chose the one profession that paid less than being a teacher. And that was and that was the newspaper business. So, yeah, that that, that was kind of silly. But by then, you know, I, I don't care what they. I'm 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 hooked. I'm gonna do it. And uh, I told my mother. I said I'm, I said someday I'm gonna I'm gonna work for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. I said that's that's my goal. And someday I'm gonna do it. And so uh, and that's so that's I tra- transferred to Georgia, and, and that was my goal. And then, so at Georgia, were you involved with the student newspaper and sports programs there as well? I was. I was. As soon as I got there, uh, I went to the uh, the Red and Black is the name of the student newspaper at Georgia, and I said, "Look, I said I was the I was the sports editor of the Georgia Southern newspaper, and I'd really like to work here." I said, "Well, okay, we, we'll give you a shot." And uh, so I started covering. Uh, some of the Georgia games, and I had a chance to go on the road with the team, and I thought that was, that was the coolest thing in the world. The first time, Georgia would always take a member of the student newspaper with them on all road trips. They'd be part of the traveling party. 
And in 1975, uh, it was my turn, and I got to go with the team to Ole, they played at Ole Miss, and uh, what you would do, and you flew in, flew into Memphis, and you bus over to Oxford. The the one the tricky thing is I I was really excited about going, but th- one thing I never told anybody was that I had never flown on an airplane in my life. I had never done it, but I was not about to tell anybody that story. And so <laughs> I get on the plane and I don't know what's going on. And they take it off, and I talk to a few other people about what it felt like and the pressure change and all that. But uh, I got through it okay. It wasn't anything. It didn't scare me a whole lot, but that my first flight ever, I'd never flown on a plane when I was growing up. My first flight ever was when I was in college and I flew with the Georgia football team to Oxford, Mississippi. What a great story. And then so when you're there riding, other than the aspect of being with the team and what you'd mentioned, also the, the pretty girls handing you a, a nice Coca-Cola, what else about sports riding and being a sports journalist captivated you? Well, it's just it's just an opportunity to follow the sport, to put your own sort of stamp on what it is that uh, uh, is going on, but to be around football. I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, to when you when you love sports and you love football, which I like, I said I got hooked on that at an early age. To, the idea of being able to make a living writing and talking about football. I mean, come on. and and, when you grow up in Uniport, Georgia you don't ever think about stuff like that I mean I I read uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution every day when I was growing up and and admired the people who like Furman Bisher and Jesse Outler and they were they were sort of my heroes in the business uh, and which is why I set myself the goal of getting there and working with those two men and uh, I I started out uh, I graduated on June 10th and on June 11th June 10th, 1976, and on June 11th, 1976, I went to work on my first newspaper job in a little town called Union, South Carolina. I was a one-man sports department, uh, and, and the, when I applied for the job and interviewed for the job, the sport, the editor asked me when could I be there. I, his name was Don Wilder, W-I-L-D, or I'll never forget it. I said, Mr. Wilder, I graduate on June 10th, and I will be here at 8 o'clock in the morning on June 11th. He said, good enough for me. And that's how it starts. And then from there, what was your plan then to ultimately get to the AJC? Well, the the plan was I knew there was a pretty good chance that I was going to have to make uh, 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 an intermediate stop somewhere along the way. I mean, you just don't go from college to a small newspaper in South Carolina to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which I didn't think you did. And so that intermediate step for me was one of the great experiences of my life, both professionally and uh, personally, is I got I was hired by the, the Greensboro News and Record in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we lived there for seven and a half years. I got married there. My only child, uh, a daughter, was born there. And we loved it there. It's a great, great place in the heart of North Carolina, which I, to this day, still deeply love. Uh, And my wife and I had made up our mind that we loved it there. And until I got the opportunity to, uh, or if I ever got the opportunity to go to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, then we'd leave. And so we stayed there uh, seven and a half years, and I covered ACC football and basketball. It was a tremendous experience. 
Uh, I got to cover my first two Final Fours in 1982 when Dean Smith won his first national championship, and then in 1983 when Jim Valvano and NC State had the miracle uh, miracle win over Houston. And it was an incredible stretch, but in 1984, the call came, and uh, I got to go home and work for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Describe that feeling when you got that call. Oh, it was, it was you know, first of all, they, they – I found out that they were looking because uh, every time I would go down, every time I would visit home and go home from North Carolina and all that, I would drop by, ask if I could drop by and say hello. So finally, I knew sooner or later they get tired of me coming by there and they'd hire me just to get, you know, to get, get me off their backs. But when I, I found out that they were looking for a new Georgia beat guy, uh, by then, so, so by then they already knew who I was. And I reached out and they said, yeah, come on down for an interview. And I was very fortunate. I had some people on the staff up in Greensboro who had, who had worked in Atlanta, who knew a lot of the people and they put in a good word for me. And I did the interview and uh, felt really good about it. And then I got a phone call. I'll never forget. A guy named Van McKenzie, one of the great sports editors who has ever lived. Uh, he's deceased now, but he called me. He says, Covering the University of Georgia football is the most important beat that we have. Do you do? Would you like to do that? I said, Yes, sir. I would very much like to do that. And so he hired me, and I was beyond ecstatic. And called my wife and said, Pack up, honey. We're going home. And she was excited. And we moved here. Uh, came here in August of 1984, and. Mrs. Barnhart made it abundantly clear that we were not going to move again. So she just said, she said, big boy, whatever you're going to do in your life and your career, you're going to have to do it right here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I said, that's good enough for me, dear. And we're still here. We've been here 33 years. Describe those first few years of now you've got your dream job, basically, and what that was like. Well, I I left my wife and my two-year-old, my daughter wasn't even two years old yet. Uh, she didn't turn two until October. I left them back in North Carolina and Maria's as most wives do or people in this business or the coaching business. My wife was in charge of selling the house and getting us moved while I was, you know, chasing, uh, football at the university of Georgia. I moved into a hotel in, in Athens, just across the street from the varsity, uh, which is a famous fast food place in, in Athens just across the street from the varsity and uh, moved into that hotel. And I stayed in that hotel. It was a best Western, which was fine for me. I didn't care. Best Western hotel. I stayed in that hotel for 31 days, 31 days and 31 nights until my family got moved down and we bought a house and stuff. And so I'm, I'm going and I am going after it, man. I am going, I'm going to every practice. I'm, I'm getting there early. I'm staying there late. And it was uh, incredible incredible experience to go through that, particularly the, the first year. And I, I did it, I did it for a year. It was one of the great years of my life, but then it's strange how things changed. Van McKenzie came to me after a year and said, I really like what you're doing. Uh, I think you've got a lot of great ideas. I'd like to make you one of my assistant sports editors of the Atlanta journal constitution. And I'm going, this is insane. I said, I'm 20 by now. I'm, what am I, 28 years, 29 years old, and I'm going to be named the assistant sports editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, you know, from Union Point, Georgia. Are you kidding me? 
And, uh, and so I took it. I, I just don't think you pass something like that up. And I took it and I did it for two years and I learned an incredible amount about the newspaper business and working in the same room with Van McKenzie and, and being a part of it and, and putting out the Sunday paper, which at, at that time was no doubt the best college football sports section in the country. And I did it for two years and learned a lot. It was a tremendous experience, but I was absolutely miserable not being at the games and not being a part of being there. And I did it for two, I did that for two years. And then I came, I went back to writing again uh, in 1987. So back to being a, a beat writer for the Bulldogs. Yeah, it was, it, it, it's an, listen, a beat like that, any kind of a college beat like that. And, and it's like the guy when Van McKenzie hired me. It's it is a grind because people. Well, as as one as one editor told me, he says, "Look, people are going to read everything you write, so try to make it good, will you?" <laughs> That's what he said. He said they're going to they're going to read it whether it's any good or not, but try real hard to make it good. And I and I said, I understand. And you had to, and this the thing about it is is that man. There was competition on that beat. Obviously, there was no internet. There was no social media. There was none of that. And so, you, if you, if you had a story back then, you had it until until the next day when you publish it. And that, that's a lot different than it is right now. And then, so speaking of you know being able to get some of the stories, and what were some of the things that you focused on to earn the trust of? the players, the coaches, and personalities that you were able to gain information from? Well, two things that you're looking for on a beat like that. Obviously, the number one thing you're looking for is news. Uh, you're looking for stuff that other people don't know. They don't know. Uh, position changes. Unfortunately, injuries are a part of it. But and what I tell young writers now is you – you can do all those things that people, for the most part, understand you've got a job to do, but you've got to be honest with them. You've got to be where they can trust you. And an example that I use a lot of times is the year I was on the beat, Georgia had a, had a linebacker who was a very good player, but had a tendency to misbehave in the bars in Athens at night. Okay. And one day he was not at practice. And I found out what happened to him and he had been suspended for getting in a bar fight. So I found out about it and I was going to write it the next day, but I wasn't going to write it until I talked to the head coach, Vince Dooley. Well, it was, it was a day that I could, I, I confirmed the story after practice, after he had talked to me, then I wasn't going to bring it up until I had it confirmed. Well, I had it, I got it confirmed and I went back to his office and I knew that he, he had a staff meeting at 7.30 every night and showed up in his office about 8 o'clock. So I waited at his office, and he shows up, and I'm there. He said, Tony, what are you doing here? I said, Coach, I've got a story that I'm going to write. He said, what is it? And I told him. I gave him the name. I said, I know that you've suspended him for getting into a fight. I've confirmed it with all the right people. He said, Tony, your story is right. I appreciate the fact that you came by and you talked to me and let me know. And here's, here's what I have to say about that. And he gave me the quote and I wrote, and, and what's interesting is that from then on, Vince Dooley and I had a tremendous relationship. I did a function with him at the college football hall of fame where I introduced him and he and I talked about his long career and uh, involved stuff like that. But that's a relationship I've known 
I've known Coach Dooley now almost 40 years, and uh, it's a relationship that's built on trust and mutual respect. What about some situations did you ever uh, encounter where a coach asked you not to write a story or publish the story, but you knew it needed to be told? Yeah, I mean, that, that happens all the time. I, I, I remember that first year I had confirmed, had a confirmed uh, failure of a drug test, and they did not want me to write it, but I had, but I had it, and I had it nailed down. And they, they eventually, they didn't like it, but they understood. And those are the things that you, that you end up having. The, the, the key is you, you're not a flamethrower. You've got the story. You've got it nailed down. There's no speculation. You've got it completely nailed down. And they, they may not want to quote about it, but they, they're not going to tell you wrong because they know, they know you're not wrong. And so, but you got to do your homework so people don't think you're going out on some kind of fishing expedition. Now, moving on to more of a regional and then a national perspective of co- covering college football, how did that occur? Well, when, when I came back, I mentioned to you that I did, I was assistant sports editor for two years. When I came back uh, to writing in 1987, basically, I just sort of made up my own job. Uh, <laughs> I said, I said, yeah, I said, here's what I want to do. Because by then, we'd hired a new Georgia beat writer. He was doing a great job. They said, what do you want to do? I said, it's real simple. I want to cover the SEC and the ACC and be in charge of those schools. Uh, because at that time, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, I mean, we covered, we had a writer in just about every every home game for most of the teams in the SEC and the ACC. We covered stuff all over the place. And so in 1987, I really became the regional, sort of regional slash national writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And part of me was the, uh, I was the, I was the lead writer for all those schools and was also helped out with the management of, we had, we, we had like 12 or 13 people who did nothing but co- cover college football and basketball. And I sort of helped manage those folks. But that's how it began because I wanted to cover the, I wanted to cover the entire SEC, not just Georgia. And they gave, they gave me that opportunity. And I did, I did that for quite a long time. And what are some of the most memorable games that you covered? Well, the the really the national championship games and are the ones that you uh, remember. I mean, the best game, the best game I ever saw was the was the Rose Bowl between Texas and USC back in '05. That that I will never forget that game because it was a game that was on deadline, and I wrote the best game story I've probably ever written in my life. But it was. When you, when you cover a game like that at night, right on deadline, you have to write two versions of the story, one with Texas winning and one with USC winning. And I kept them on separate screens on my computer. And the story I wrote of USC winning was absolutely the best game story I ever wrote, and it never saw the light of day because Texas came back and won the game. But it's those kind of memories. I was there for the Ohio State-Miami game in 02 with the controversial pass interference call uh, and Ohio State wins uh, a national championship there. I was there for Bobby Bowden's first national championship in uh, 1993 covering those teams. I covered all the Florida teams with Coach Spurrier. I, I had known Coach Spurrier since he was an assistant coach at Duke in 1980, 80, 81 and 82. And then he comes back to Florida as head coach in 1990. I was there for all of his championships. 
Uh, I got the opportunity. I'm, I'm one of a handful of people who has covered all 25 SEC championship games. Uh, and that's been a great treat. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful beat. And, uh, I was very happy at the Atlanta Journal Constitution, but you know, things change. And, and when 2008 rolled around, I had a chance to go do something different. And describe that uh, change and um, presume that's your move into more of a TV role. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I, I've been doing television. I started doing television uh, in the 80s with a little local cable access show that did high school football. They asked me to do some games and do a little studio work. And I said, you know, I need to try this. I had people tell me and said, look, you got a, you got a pretty good voice and you know what you're talking about and you need to try television. So my early, my early reaction to that was, well, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a serious journalist. I mean, I'm a newspaper guy. I don't, you know, I'm not going to mess with TV. That's just not, a, I'm, I'm serious. And they looked at me and said, well, they'll pay you. And I said, well, maybe I don't want to be too hasty here. I want to keep an open mind about it. And so I, I, I started, uh, I started TV and, uh, was just on the cable exit. I was just absolutely dreadful. I was so bad. Uh, but that's, you know, you got to learn, you got to go somewhere where you can be bad for a while and learn what you're doing. And, uh, I got hooked on it and it started, uh, 1994. I had an opportunity to do my first work for ESPN. They had a, they used to have a thing long, long ago during the Thursday night games, during halftime of the Thursday night games, they had a thing called a halftime blitz. And what they would do is they'd do quick, about a one minute in each place. And they'd go to the East and the South and the Midwest and the Midwest. And, uh, I saw that and I saw the guy who was doing it from the South and I said, Hey, I can do that. I can absolutely do that. And so I got a contact with ESPN. So a, fr- a friend of mine was actually doing it. Ivan Mazel, who works for ESPN.com. Ivan is a dear friend of mine and he was doing it for, he was the East guy in the halftime blitz. And I said, Ivan, who could I talk to about this? He gave me a name and I wrote him. I said, and I sent him some radio stuff I'd done. I said, hey, if you ever need another guy to do the South part of the halftime blitz, I said, I'm your guy. And, and ironically, they had Mel Kuyper Jr. doing the, the South. And Mel lives in Maryland. And we all know that Maryland's not in the South. And so I said, you just need, you need a guy from the South. And I'm your guy. And son of a gun. After I wrote them the letter, about two months later, they called and said, come up here for an interview. We want to talk to you. And I got that job. And that's when I first started doing television with ESPN. And what gives you more satisfaction today, TV or writing? It is a completely different set of muscles. And that's what I tell young journalists who want to do, who want to be in this business. I said, learn how to do everything. It's your, your television broadcast muscles are different than your radio broadcast muscles and and the rest of it writing is completely different and you get you get a satisfaction out of doing them all and if you can do them all and do them all pretty well you got a much better chance of staying employed now in terms of technology and how communication has evolved how has social media changed how you do your job no it's it's changed everything i mean it's changed because i can remember when we were first ramping up the internet and the internet was getting going and the AJC website was going, we would absolutely, if, if one of us had a breaking news story, we would actually have a conversation about whether or not we would hold that story and to the print edition, a 
Okay, we would we would actually hold stories because we didn't we don't want to put them on the internet. Then heck, everybody would see them. <laughs> and then we went. I know it's a, that's a crazy idea now, but we said no. We I said we put it on the internet, then everybody's going to know. Well, yeah, stupid. That's what you want. You want everybody to know. But we we would hold story, and then finally we evolved and said, well, this is dumb. We got it now. Let's put it out now. Uh, but that that's the way to change. You used to be if you had a story, you, you could probably sit on it. The, the trick was to try to sit on it until you could get it into the newspaper the next morning. Now the question is, can you sit on it long enough to get it tweeted out or get your story done so you can tweet it out? And that, uh, that, that is just crazy. And the reaction, good or bad, is immediate. And I said, I said, the great thing about social media is that everybody has an opinion. The bad thing about social media is that everybody has an opinion. It's it, it it has changed completely changed the way that we do things, but the technology is so great that it's worth the crate the lunacy that and so you just have to learn you have to learn to go with the flow and roll with the punches. Now, how long did it take you to become proficient with Twitter? An amazing story. I had uh, I can't remember the year. It might have been oh six, oh five, oh six. A relative of mine, I had just started the, the Mr. College football blog at the AJC, and she came to me and said, Tony, you really need to be on Twitter. I said, sure. What's Twitter? And she explained to me what Twitter was, and, and I said, wait a minute. I said, let me see if I – you got to write something in 140 characters? So I can't even clear my throat in 140 characters. I mean, come on. And, but I, I finally got a hold of it, and I figured, I figured out, okay, this is something you can use. And so what, what I did early on was every time I would write a blog, then I would tweet it out, include a link back to the blog, and through that, my goal, my goal, I said, I, and she told me, she said, and people are going to follow you. I said, get out of here. They're not going to follow me. I said, yeah, no, they are. The people will start following you. And then I found people, I look up, and one day, there's like, 10 people following me. I said, this is, this is crazy. So my goal when I first started Twitter, I figured if I could get a hundred people to follow me, that would really be cool. So that was my goal. My goal was get a hundred people following. So. Well, I think you accomplished that, didn't you, sir? I did. I think we're at 122,000. <laughs> yes, you're over 100,000. That's right. <laughs> oh, wow. Now, who came up with the name Mr. College Football? Oh, I, Again, as, as, as most things in my career, I can't take any credit for it. Somebody else was just smart. We had a, we had, when we started up the Internet site at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we had a guy named Scott Peacock who was the editor and was putting the whole thing together. And one day, he, Scott came to me because I was at this time I was covering the, the SEC and the national beat. And he said, Tony, we, we really want you to do a blog. And I said, sure, Scott. He said, I said, what's a blog? And he explained to me what it was. And I said, well, let me see if I got this right. You want me to write something and put it on the Internet so that people will read it and start arguing amongst themselves. He said, yes, that's exactly what we want you to do. I said, OK, I, I, I can do that. He said, uh, also, he said, you, you need to know we want to give it a name. We want to call it Mr. College Football. And I said, Scott. Isn't that kind of cheesy? I mean, that, isn't that pretty presumptuous? Of that he said, "No, Tony, trust me, cheesy works on the internet." I said, 
okay. So we started the blog in 06 or 07 and called it Mr. College Football, and the name stuck. And when I ended up leaving the AJC, I said, boys, I'm taking, I'm, I'm taking it with me. I'm not going to give it back. Was there any pushback from AJC about letting you take that name? No, because I didn't. I, I said, guys, I'm doing it. And uh, my, for, fortunately, my, I never heard a peep from the AJC. They were they were great. They said, look, there's never there's only been one Mr. College Football, and you're it. So it's not it's no big deal. And uh, it's funny people come up to me and say that, and it's it's. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes I'm saying it's really presumptuous of me to, to use a title like that, but it's been it's been great for me, and people are really nice about it. Well, it's a badge of honor, and I think a lot of it has to do with the knowledge that you have of college football. And so, how do you prepare for each show that you do or each weekend that you do? Because one of the things, again, that you've earned the trust of the audience is your knowledge. So, how do you prepare? Well, on a typical week during the season, I mean, I, I really I start preparing for the season in the spring. I mean, I when I get back from the national championship game, I take a little time off uh, in Jan- the rest of January and, and, and about half of February. Then I start getting ready for spring practice. And one of the things I've done for, gosh, 25, 30 years is I put together binders of the SEC East and the SEC West and, and the national conferences. And I start, I've got a, section of that binder devoted to every team. And what I do is I start building information as I get information in from the schools and stuff is written. I'm, I'm printing stuff up, putting in the binders, taking down notes. And then I've got a basis uh, of knowledge when spring practice rolls around. And then what I've done, gosh, 25 years or more, I go to as many schools, SEC schools as I can get to during spring practice. Now, in the last two years, thanks to our friends at the SEC Network and Gridiron Now, I've been able to uh, get to all 14 schools uh, during spring practice. And I, every school, I sit down with the head coach, both coordinators, and several players. And that is a tremendous resource. And I'm writing stories off of everyone, transcribe all of my interviews. I tape everything, transcribe them all, print them out, put them in the binder. And that's my that's my research book. So by the time that we get to May and spring practice is over, I've got several thick binders of information on the teams. And then when July rolls around, I get out the binders, start studying those notes that I have, and then start adding to those things. And then when practice starts in late July and August, I do it all over again. I start going back to the schools. And but so by the time the games start, I've got I've got a lot of information and that that really serves as the basis. And then once the games start, you do your daily preparation to get ready for Saturday's show, which is, you know, going to campus and talking to a lot of people. And I'm taking a ton of notes. By the time I get to the studio on, on Saturday, Peter Burns, I just, I, Peter Burns has a ton of notes. I have a ton of notes and we sit down on Saturday morning and compare notes and then we're ready to go. Well, you obviously are very well prepared, and it shows each and every Saturday. And so now, as we're starting to wrap things up, Tony, how can you describe the impact of sports and what it's meant in your life and the life lessons that you've learned from it? Well, it's it's completely defined my professional life. It has changed, you know. You know, coming from where I came from in a small Georgia town, your options are somewhat limited. Uh, you don't, 
you don't know kind of what you're going to do. And to have a career like I've been fortunate enough to have, to travel all over the country and all over the world and to be a part of all that is, is something I never could have dreamed of. Because I, I don't know as a young man that my horizons, I, I couldn't see that far. You know, it just didn't, it never occurred to me. And so to have, to be able to do something you love and to make a decent living at it uh, and provide for your family. And, and, you know, and of course you've got to have, it doesn't work unless you've got the right person by your side. And I've been, and on August 14th, uh, Maria and I will have been married for 40 years. And there is a special place in heaven for a woman who's been married to a sports writer for 40 years. Uh, they, they put up with a lot. Uh, there are a lot of nights when I wasn't home uh, chasing stories and chasing other stuff. And uh, I think I counted one time there have been five Christmas days where I've had to get up from the dinner table, the Christmas dinner table, and go chase a story. And it's just part, it's part of it. And it's, but it's been, it has been an incredible run, uh, incredible career, incredible experience. I never could have really dreamed of when I was a small boy. And I know I, I've worked extremely hard and, uh, but I've been very fortunate as well. Well said. And now what about some words of wisdom for our listeners? I ask this of all our guests, Tony. I, I get a chance to talk to a lot of journalism classes over at Georgia. And I always tell them, several things, but one of the things I always tell them, I said, look, you got, you got to be yourself, figure out what works for you. Don't try to be somebody else. Everybody's road is different. Uh, my road is going to be different than your road and, and figure out what works best for you. That's number one. Number two is a saying, I'm a big fan of the wisdom of coach John Wooden. And one of the things he says is discipline yourself. Discipline yourself so that others won't have to. Talent without discipline is like a vaccine without a syringe. Vaccine is great, but if you don't have a syringe where you can deliver it, it's not going to work. It's not going to help you. And to me, if if you don't harness your talent and discipline yourself to go to work every day, to prepare every day, uh, to over-prepare every day. I told this group, I said, always be on time, always dress professionally. And if you're on time, then you're late. Always be five minutes early or more to every appointment that you have. Don't ever be late for a meeting with a source, for a meeting with a coach, for a meeting. That don't ever be, ever be late and dress. If you want to be treated like a professional, then dress like a professional. Well, I think you have lived those words for sure in your career, and I know we'll be looking forward to watching you. And, Tony, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. All right, Richmond, you bet. No question after hearing Tony's story, you'll know why the Mr. College Football name just fits. That's who he is, and I think it's who he's always been. He just didn't always have the name. And it just didn't come by accident. Did you hear the amount of preparation that goes into each season for him? There's really no off-season for him. And that's probably someone you don't want to get into a debate with about college football. What also I found interesting is what Tony mentioned several times when people approached him with new and different ideas. For instance, he mentioned, they said, hey, Tony, we want you to write a blog. And his response Okay, sounds good. 
but what's a blog? They then approached him again. Hey, Tony, you need to be on Twitter. And he responded, okay, but what's Twitter? Point is, he wasn't afraid to evolve, and he went with it. And he was able to capture a whole new generation of college football fans each time because he was okay with learning something new, but being able to apply his principles and foundations that he built years before. I thoroughly enjoyed Tony's story, being from a small town in Georgia to now nationally known Mr. College Football, and I hope you did as well. Time to finish now this episode with the weekly words of wisdom. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Let's explore the weekly words of wisdom. This week, our words of wisdom come from Albert Hubbard, who is an American writer, publisher, artist, and philosopher who died while aboard the Lusitania after the ship was torpedoed on May 7, 1915. In his quote, he reminds us that it's okay to venture into something new, even though we might not know exactly what we're doing. His quote, The greatest mistake you can make in life is to continually be afraid you will make one. These words of wisdom seem so appropriate for this episode after we heard the story from Mr. College Football, Tony Barnhart, and again, just how he was able to evolve and almost reinvent himself. And you know what? Maybe it's even true for me as well by starting this sports podcast. I don't have a crystal ball and I have no idea where this path will lead. But one thing I know right now is that I'm no longer afraid to go down this path and see exactly where it will take me. So the journey continues and will continue in the next episode. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.